Tired of ads barging into your favorite news podcasts? Good news. Ad-free listening is available on Amazon Music for all the music plus top podcasts included with your Prime membership. Stay up to date on everything newsworthy by downloading the Amazon Music app for free or go to amazon.com slash news ad free. That's amazon.com slash news ad free to catch up on the latest episodes without the ads. Say hello to a new era of mental health care. Cerebral is here to help you achieve your mental wellness goals with professional therapy and medication management support. 100% online. You'll experience the all new Cerebral way, an innovative approach to mental wellness designed around you. You'll get a personalized treatment plan from a therapist, prescriber, or both in a safe and judgment-free space. Your cerebral therapist or prescriber will outline a customized plan with clear milestones along the way, so you can get to feeling your best. With Cerebral, you're not alone in your mental health journey. We're here to empower you to live a fulfilling life. So take that first step towards a brighter future and sign up today at Cerebral.com slash podcast and use code ACAST to get 15% off your first month. Offer only valid on monthly plans. Other exclusions may apply. Offer ends July 31st, 2024. See site for details. Unconventional Soldier, a military podcast brought to you by two British Army veterans in association with ISAR.com. Okay, welcome to another episode of the podcast. Our guest today is the Cognitive Marine, a serving United States Marine Corps officer. So we take a deep dive today into a lot of subjects, including the future structure of the United States Marines, why we fail to learn from past wars, leadership responsibilities, advice for young marines, service self-harm and suicides, the war in Ukraine, and the use of social media to educate and enlighten the people in your command. So hopefully we're going to pick up a few new listeners, uh, and if that's the case then you may well be interested in some of our past podcasts, especially ones that relate to expeditionary warfare. So first we've got pod number 9, which is an episode about the Battle for Mount Longdon in the Falklands with guest Jimmy Morham. Jimmy was a section commander with 3rd Battalion of Parachute Regiment and it's an absolutely fantastic account of a difficult battle fought at the tip of the bayonet and it was one of the bloodiest during the campaign. We've also got podcast number 30 which is about naval gunfire and uh, those of you who know the Falklands will uh, recognise that naval gunfire was vitally important in the success of that campaign. Moving across time into a different part of the world, we've got an account by a one Royal Irish Infantry Sergeant, Platoon Sergeant, about the operations that they conducted in Helmand Province during one of the bloodiest years of the Afghanistan campaign. But as usual, we kicked off with a guest military backstory, so we hope you enjoy this one. I, I joined the Marine Corps back in 2001, uh, right before 9-11, and uh, I when I joined the Marine Corps, I, it was a different security environment, as we all know. I mean, uh, I, I think every one of us knows exactly where we were at and what we were doing the moment 9-11 happened. I, I lived in a world like most of you before that. And my intention was just to do four years or six years in the Marine Corps and transition out and do something different with my life. But, um, once 9-11 happened, 
it changed everything, I think, for a lot of people as well. I, I think the real question is here, what has kept me in the Marine Corps since all of that time has passed? And for me, it has been the ability to lead Marines. And that is what has kept me in this organization. I like it. Uh, I enjoy all the challenges that come associated with it. And I also enjoy the unknowns. And I think that is something that as leaders over time, maybe some come be, become comfortable with it. At least for me, I have. I've become very comfortable with this unknown factor. Like right now, I have no idea where I'm moving this summer. And for some people, that's a very uncomfortable <laughs> reality. You know, being in the Marine Corps is, is a choice. And you can choose to dwell on the negative aspects or you can choose to enjoy the, uh, the unknown adventure that, that awaits. My father was in the Air Force for uh, 26 years. But that's it. There are no other Marines in my family. What was his reaction when you said you're going to be a Marine? So I wish I had a photo of my dad's jaw slapping off the floor. <laughs> and uh, my mom was like, looking over to my dad, wondering what the hell just happened. And um, my mom was asking, uh, what is the Marine Corps? <laughs> For a Brit, you know, the U.S. Marine Corps is seen as an organization that considers itself, you know, that looks down upon the Army, it looks way down upon the Air Force, and uh, it's seen as a, an elite organization to join. Is that the perception in the U.S. as well? Yes, generally speaking. And those are not perceptions. Those are facts, my friend. <laughs> I have worked with the U.S. Marine Corps, and they, uh, their loyalty to the U.S. Marine Corps, and when there's U.S. Army around or anyone else, they're not interested at all. Uh, I was just going to say that uh, we enjoy the joint environment because it, it always makes us look better. How long can you stay in the U.S. Marine Corps as an officer then? There's yeah. definitely an age limit. I, I think... Um, once you become a general, that's a congressional appointment. So the highest rank yeah. you can be promoted to in the Marine Corps is colonel and sergeant major gotcha. for the enlisted. But there's yeah. only for the enlisted, there's one rank that's an, it's an appointment. And that is you're appointed to the sergeant major of the Marine Corps. That's, a, that's an appointment. Yeah. Officer ranks, the only, the only ranks are generals that can be appointed by Congress. And there's waivers to age limits. But there is a mandatory retirement age. I, I forget off the top of my head. On the flip side of that is also the reality is that this is a young man and woman's game here. This is not an old man organization. So I think uh, even at 45 or in my case, um, 41, it, it's, it's, it's a young man's organization. It's, it's, it's tough to be in for more than 20 years, as you, as you gentlemen well know. So as, as the Marine, U.S. Marine Corps reorganized itself to prepare for potential conflicts in areas in the Indo-Pacific with China, and I believe it's starting to change how it operates and to break into smaller groups, casting over a larger area to improve survivability and lethality. Can you explain to our listeners what those changes are to the core and the reasons behind them? Yes, great question. General Berger, who is our commandant of the Marine Corps, over the last few years has released a series of documents 
all under this umbrella known as Force Design 2030. In effect, he wants to change the composition and the aims of certain portions of the force, not the entire organization, but certain portions of the force to better prepare to, to fight and win in the next kind of future war. And he wants to accomplish that by 2030, hence the force design by 2030. And there is a series of kind of assumptions that are made in all of that. One is like money. Two is, uh, um, you know, the, 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 security environment as we perceive it now and into the future. And then three, uh, the manpower piece, getting the manpower piece kind of correctly. And there's there's a few others there, programmatics about uh, how we procure certain equipment and when it becomes ready, stuff like that. But really, there's really a manpower piece. There's a money piece to this. And then there's kind of this, the threat and security environment piece to all this. Uh, what the Commandant is really aiming for is, I, I think we can all agree that we want to have, whether you're the British military or the U.S. military, that you want to have a decisive advantage over your enemy. And you're not looking for parity. You're not looking for the win at the very last second. You're looking for a decisive advantage from the moment you start deploying. That the enemy makes a, has it come to, as we like to say, come to Jesus moment before they even raise that rifle. Like, do I want to do this? I think a lot of that, that question that, that the enemy hopefully asks is really based on uh, the enemy understanding clearly about what they are about to face. And do you have that kind of decisive advantage over your enemy? And in order to get there, we have got to alter the way the Marine Corps works and not, not holistically, but and again, going back to certain aspects and a lot of force design 2030s manifesting itself into these units called littoral regiments. And these littoral regiments are being constructed. They're, they're, they're very mature organizations. As an example, they don't have tanks. That's a very famous thing that the Marine Corps got rid of his tanks. We've also reduced the amount of aviation aircraft, specifically rotary wing. And a lot of this has to be based on, is based on the, the current threat security environment that we're engaged in. As an example, the last time we used tanks in anger was in Afghanistan, but that was for a very kind of narrow window of time. And before that, it was the invasion of Iraq. And again, that was a very narrow window of time. So the Marine Corps' aims are based off, or Force Design's aims are based off the threat security environment we believe we're going to be facing in the Pacific. Our, our goal isn't to go to war with China. Our goal, kind of getting back to my earlier statement, is to have a decisive advantage over our adversary, our potential adversaries in the Indo-Pacific. And if you choose to fight the United States military, and you're facing off against the Marine Corps unit, our desire is to have such an overwhelming advantage that we give pause to the enemy. It's hard to do that when you have this lumbering tank that is requires fuel at uh, significant uh, rates far beyond any other piece of equipment. If we were to put tanks on a small remote island in the Indo-Pacific, you're really not going to be a a Marine Corps, you know, infantry regiment or battalion, you're going to be a fuel station with 
a bunch of infantry Marines around it. Uh, and that's really, you, you don't want to like uh, have the tail wagging the dog here. You don't want to have your overwhelming logistics requirements driving your operations. That's the wrong way to have it. And the Commandant, through many war games and much of our leadership through many war games and deeply thinking about the problem that we're facing in the Indo-Pacific, I believe made a great decision in getting rid of the Abrams tanks. They were just too heavy, too maintenance intensive, and not well suited towards the threat environment we're perceiving. Now, if the threat environment changes, it, it's, a, it's a simple ask to relook at the tanks. But that's not the threat security environment we're, we're aiming towards. I think that's what's really driving, as we like to say, intelligence drives operations. So what does our intelligence tell us? Where are we fighting next? It's funny because we had a, we opened up the podcast to some questions from people, and that was one of the questions somebody sent in. And uh, I think what maybe people are missing is, and you can correct me if I'm wrong here, is, is the environment you'll be fighting in in the Pacific will be sort of the jungle environment, short-range engagements. Again, that would probably negate the need for tanks, though, though tanks were used in that country in the Second World War, but certainly not at the weight and size of a, an M1. But this guy who sent in a question also asked, how will you cover that loss of direct fire with longer range ATGM, loitering munitions, or even high miles? I just wonder what you thought of that sort of Yeah, there. so the, the, there is still a chance for long range engagements that is still there. Uh, the question is, is are we going to prosecute those kind of targets with a direct fire weapon like a M1A2 or A3 Abrams tank? And I believe the answer is no, because it, once you become within range of a direct fire munition like the Abrams tank, it's almost too late. Uh, the enemy is kind of on you at that point, even though we're talking, you know, thousands of meters here. You really need to be prosecuting targets well beyond the horizon, uh, beyond the range of the Abrams tank. Now, it's not the only way of getting at it, but I believe the most the most intel what what the war games are telling us is that our threats are going to be coming from ships, from aircraft, from small loitering munitions, from unmanned aerial vehicles, and having the right type of ordnance mixture that can prosecute those kind of targets is what we're looking for. And that's uh, one of the things we're coming out with is the Nemesis missile, which is a, um, a naval strike missile that can shoot over the horizon or can range over the horizon and prosecute targets. Well, uh, you know, uh, uh, naval ships and stuff like that. We're also looking at HIMARS. You know, everyone's loving HIMARS right now, especially the Ukrainians. Uh, those are great, great weapon systems. Uh, we've always known that, but um, the reality is that HIMARS, as a prime example, is a long-range munition. It's got a ballistic trajectory. It's precision. And those are the kind of fires. It's mobile. Those are the kind of fires we need. And uh, and that's the kind of fires that the Marine Corps is acquiring. Uh, munitions like ATGM, some of the more short, shorter-range uh, direct-fire munitions, as we're seeing in Ukraine, and we have to be careful not to glean too many uh, re-justification for doing all the things we're doing from the war in Ukraine. But the war in Ukraine is giving the Marine Corps ample examples of how lethal, uh, like the N-Law, which is a great British, I believe that's a Swedish weapon as well, uh, weapon system can be, is that you're going to want these kind of advanced 
munitions that can sense armor, that can sense uh, other kind of troops or uh, in confined spaces, whatever the target looks like. That is a smart munition that can prosecute those kind of targets. That's that's what we need more of, not less. And I think you you touched on it there. I think you can learn good and bad lessons and wrong lessons from any sort of war. And I think people are looking at tanks in Ukraine and thinking, oh, you know, there's still a future for the tank, which undoubtedly is, but it's probably terrain specific. And you can look at Ukraine and think that's ideal tank country. But does it mean that tanks have an application, as you've just discussed, in a Pacific island in the middle of nowhere? Even in Ukraine, I'm not a tanker. I'm a, I'm a logistics guy, but I understand the logistic problems of tanks, having supported tanks. And I will tell you that even in Ukraine, I, I, I understand why the Ukrainians want tanks, but I, I'm not sure the Ukrainians understand uh, holistically once you get like the Abrams tank, which is a very maintenance intensive tank, a, a tank is re- the Abrams is really well suited for a Western military with Sydney with significant logistics behind it. The, the Russian T-70 kind of models are probably your better answer based off the logistics you have. First question I think of is, do your fuel hoses even connect properly to an Abrams tank? I don't even think that's possible. Yeah, and you start operating mixed fleets, it becomes an absolute nightmare for, for that well, logistic think, piece that you talked about. They'll probably talk about it a bit later, but there's been reports about this, about um, all the gifting, because everyone's gifting various bits of equipment. The logistics tri- trial at the moment is even more complex because nothing's um, interoperable. Calibers are different, fuel's different, maintenance engines, you can't just swap them out. Uh, there's a whole host of problems potentially down the road what was interesting you you mentioned that you were reducing your aviation footprint as well yeah so why why because um, I, I found because uh, in afghanistan because I, I was out there when the u.s marine uh, was out there and because you bring you you're, you're very independent force you bring your own aviation own artillery everything you become self-sufficient yeah that's a it's a great question um the, the reality is that the range of a helicopter, even at its like, with extra fuel tanks, fully loaded, the wind's at the pilot's back, you're, you're not getting more than 350 miles, 400 miles out of this thing. He's also got to come back. So you're really only talking, you know, 150 to 200 miles on the best weather conditions. And that's with like no no loiter time, where you're hovering over a target or uh, looking at an object, trying to trying to decipher what it is. In the Indo-Pacific, the distance between islands is in the thousands of miles. There are limited situations where helicopters of that type model series will be rotor ring. Tilt rotor is different, right? Because we're talking tilt rotor has ranges into the hundreds and hundreds of miles. Outside of tilt rotor, typical or standard rotor wing helicopters have got very limited ranges. And there's going to be a place on the battlefield for rotor wing helicopters. That The answer to that question is emphatically yes. The other question is we have to shape the battlefield to where rotor wings can exist and operate effectively. So we don't need as many rotor wings uh, squadrons 
as we did maybe in Iraq and Afghanistan, where there was kind of shorter range uh, distances where the uh, aircraft could fly and prosecute targets can come back in this kind of future threat environment. We're still going to need those rotor wings. We just won't need as much of those um, those uh, squadrons. So it's, it's part of that. It's part of that because the these literal regiments on an island will be not fixed. That's the wrong term, but they'll be they'll be more static. No, I, I, they'll they'll be mo- they'll be mobile. It's just that they'll be mobile. Uh, maybe they're going to have a range of mobility options. One is by sea. They're going to be able to send out companies here and there, platoons. Um, and they are going to have rotor wing. It's just that they're not going to need as much as we needed in Iraq and Afghanistan. What we'll need more of is aerial refueling capability, as an example, which is what we're doing. They're going to need the F-35 to operate in a fifth-gen uh, high-threat, air-to-air threat environment and surface-to-air threat environment. So we're gonna we we're, we are we have a greater mixture of the F thirty five of aerial refueling than we need of rotor wing because it's just the the operating environment again is different. Another question that a listener sent in was: Is this force review cutting capabilities, i.e., snipers? Uh, we all discussed armor. That was a question he, he did put in there as well. That are critical to the U.S. Marine Corps as an independent fighting force. Or will the new design no, no longer require such roles? When, when it comes to capability, the Marine Corps has focused a lot of its force design changes, some of which is adding capability, by the way. I, I think um, the, the notion in that question is that we're cutting capability. Yes, in some places, we're actually adding capability in others. As an example, in the not-so-distant future, there are going to be infantry battalions, littoral infantry battalions and regiments that are going to have a naval strike missile to be able to sink a ship. That's a capability that's never existed in an infantry battalion or regiment. Mm. There are infantry companies and battalions that are going to have indirect support, long range missile artillery, rocket artillery, excuse me. Again, a capability has never existed. Uh, there are going to be, as an example, to get a real tactical situation, squad leaders who are going to be staff sergeants. And that's a that's an additive capability, uh, much more mature, highly experienced and well-trained infantry uh, Marine who is going to be uh, at the squad level. I mean, that's a tremendous capability improvement. If you're if you're asking whether or not that infantry company or platoon can call on a tank for fire support, you're out of luck. But there's other munitions that are probably more appropriate to your threat environment that that unit will be able to call on and will be available. There's going to be increase in communications capability. So you're going to have a marine formation that is going to be able to operate in this very uh, high threat communications environment, as an example. So, there are aspects of the Marine Littoral Regiment that are significant improvements upon which uh, maybe a similar formation would have faced in Iraq and Afghanistan. Uh, but those are two different kind of threat environments. So, I think it's 
I, I think the more appropriate question is uh, for, for the scenario, are the formations that we are building now correct for the threat environment we're facing? And the answer is emphatically yes. We have a long way to go. As an example, the light amphibious warship, the law, as we're calling it, it's a um, small, smaller, not a small uh, uh, cargo variant uh, that can carry troops and equipment. This is something that doesn't exist currently in the inventory. Uh, the Marine Corps has done a pretty good job at evaluating potential options, and one is coming online here soon for test and evaluation. The, the the law, the light amphibious warship, is a significant improvement over current capabilities. You're not going to want to bring in a large amphibious uh, assault ship like uh, we would have with the USS Macon Island or any one of these large deck ships, because those are incredible targets that could be easily prosecuted by anyone with a long-range cruise missile. And the Chinese possess... Uh, long-range ballistic cruise missiles that can be fired from many, many thousands of miles away. You need something smaller. And so, yes, we are gaining quickly additive capability for the current threat environment that we are facing and the future threat environment we're facing. So I think the good news is that we're not stepping into the, we're, we're not, we're not shaping the force with the kind of stuff we had in Iraq and Afghanistan. That's not the threat environment we're facing. All soldiers, Marines in the British Army and American forces, they all hate change. <laughs> you know, it's like, um, yeah. and it's that change management and, and management of expectations that, that's critical. So, no, so thanks for clearing it up there. How does your previous combat experience inform your future assessments about the next war and what the US Marines need to do to prepare? I think a lot of uh, military personnel that served in the wars in Iraq and Afghanistan, we all tend to look back. And sometimes uh, we, we, you know, I do it over a beer or something, or I'm reminiscing with friends. And like most people, I think I choose, depending on the scenario, different aspects of my experience, I kind of reflect on well. On others, I, t- I tend to be very um, prosecutorial of my experience where I, I judge it harshly. So I think as a Marine, what's important, at least for, for what, what I would advise other Marines, because I can only speak to my culture and my, my population group, but I think there's some similarity here to others. I, I think you have to be very careful about the experiences that you, that you gather. And I mean careful in the sense that uh, you have to judge them in the light under which they were under in the conditions under which those experiences were had at the time and place and environment that they were in. Because we, we tend to make these quantum leaps about our experiences. Uh, it, it, you have to be very careful about that because those experiences existed under very specific circumstances. And um, Do you think that's so a form I of confirmation bias? Do you yes. think that's a form of confirmation bias, i.e. this happened, therefore it, our reaction right. to it was correct, right. therefore it's suitable for the next war? Yes, that, that that's certainly true. But I think there's other aspects of it, like, you know, I'm sure we'll get into it, The uh, what, what happened in Afghanistan at the end there a year ago. I think what happened at the end of Iraq 
during the um, 2010 with the rise of ISIS and as they swept across Western Iraq after all the fighting the Marine Corps did in Western and uh, Al Anbar. I think there was a lot of questions about what happened there and rightfully so. I think what's what's the harder question is can you judge those experiences in, in the in time, place, and space that they uh, that they occurred in, and can you glean what you need out of that, or are you just going to like cast a whole net over across that entire thing? I often uh, get asked on the cognitive marine, and I think what people are really asking me to do is to cast dispersions and judgment on the administrations. A lot of people are rightfully so upset about their own experiences. And one of my kind of basic understandings about service in the military and in the Marine Corps is that I signed up for this. What scenario did I think that we this, you know, we, we were going to do everything perfect? Uh, either I've been living under a, a, a box for the last 42, 41 years, or I haven't read a book because I saw what happened in Vietnam. I saw what happened in other conflicts where maybe it got messy at the end. I, I you know, I, I push back, um, you know, frequently and I ask people like, hey, look, man, you are in the U.S. military. You're specifically in the Marine Corps. Under what environment do you think, you know, we are go- always going to do it perfectly? And the reality is, is we don't get it right all the time. If you want to change that, if you want to be a part of, uh, you know, a new foreign policy that dictates a, a different trajectory in our wars and in our um, foreign policy engagements, there are other jobs for you that will help. And I, I highly recommend you go down this path. But as a person who straps a weapon to their uh, back um, or their chest and a pack on their back, you know, you you are part of a very distant arm of American foreign policy. You owe it to yourself to make sure your organization is well-trained, well-equipped, and ready for combat. That if you begin dwelling on all these other 30,000-foot view aspects of war fighting and whether we should or should not have gone in, I think that's a very, uh, it's a very tempting route to go down, but it detracts from the overall effectiveness of your organization. And you have signed signed up for an organization that is focused purely on winning battles. And that is what our job is. And that is where your focus should be. And so when I look back about the service in, the, in, the, in those wars in, our, in Iraq and elsewhere throughout the world that I've served in, I'm very careful about focusing on the relevant aspects of my service, being very cautious about judging the overall kind of strategic environment under which we should or should not have gone to war. Some people will say, hey, that's not my pay grade or whatever it is. I, I think the reality is, is that my, my role in life, my, my job right now, what I'm getting paid to do is very kind of very specific, very narrow. Am I good enough at that job? That's the first question I ask myself before I start, you know, asking these broader questions and questioning authorities and guidance and judgments at the very kind of strategic political level. It, it gets messy up there. Do you not think for people, though, the idea of just war, that theory of a just war, is, was increasingly muddied by Afghanistan and Iraq? Now, for example, you know, Kevin and I both served in Northern Ireland. Um, we saw the reasons behind that. 
and the aims were clear. It was a bit of a dirty war, but we understood why we were doing it. Desert Storm, ejecting Saddam Hussein from Kuwait. Again, very clear uh, war. Then you start getting into Afghanistan. The original invasion of Afghanistan, it was successful. Got sidetracked from with Iraq. Got bogged down in both those theatres. Do you not think, though, that some people questioning the reasons for being there impacts their view of things? And I get what you're saying there, that they, they shouldn't let that happen because at the end of the day, you're a soldier or a Marine. Politicians make war and soldiers and Marines fight them. Is that basically... Is that a fair summary of what you've said there? Yeah, effectively. I think I think as all leaders, whether you're officer enlisted, you owe it to your your forces, your troops, your Marines, whatever whatever organization you're in, to be very clear about your mission. I think if you start entering into the political stratospheric conversations, I mean this thing could go on and on. And I, I think it's interesting you bring up the the just war conversation, because I think that's an important one. You know, the, the U.S. military has a long history of armed conflict. And the reality is, is that, as an example, uh, I study uh, uh, often, I read British history, military history, because you guys have an even more extensive background in, uh, in armed conflict. And I think there's a lot we can learn about uh, war fighting in, through history. And that's what I want our Marines, my, you know, Marines I lead to focus in on is, okay, what can we learn about, not about policy, because we don't make policy, we prosecute it. What can we learn about prosecuting that policy to do our jobs better? And as an officer, if asked, I will provide guidance or advice or recommendations on how to better execute, you know, an activity in support of a policy. And so I think the, the the question, if it's an officer or civilian member of our organization, and they ask little old me about how to, um, uh, given this policy guidance, what is the best way of executing an activity in support of that policy guidance? That's, that's where I come in and, and provide my best recommendations. Very few times do senior leaders say, Hey, it's not coming from the president or the secretaries. Hey, I need you to take that hill. What, what they're trying to achieve is strategic war aims in support of a an overall policy. So the real question is, is, is what we are doing in direct support of those objectives of what we're trying to do here? And often those war aims, those objectives get sideways of the overall uh, policies. And there's ample examples of that in, in the U.S. military alone. As an example, Vietnam is a great, great example of where we became embroiled in a war for well over a decade. And over time, a drift occurred between our political aims and what we were doing on the battlefield. Uh, as an example, most of the bombs dropped in the Vietnam War occurred over South Vietnam. And it's not like 51%. It's like 60, 70% of all the ordnance dropped was on the very place that we're trying to win over. And so, I mean, there right there is a military activity that is diversion of the overall strategic aim, political aims. So and you could say the same in Afghanistan, though, surely. Yeah, you yeah, know, it, you, you could. So, so why do you think this failure to learn by militaries happens again? Why were the mistakes in Vietnam repeated to... 
again in Afghanistan. When it comes to lessons, that, that, that kind of getting back to my earlier point about understanding your own experience in the context under which it occurred is so, so critically important. As an example, it was often said that we were being successful in Iraq at certain points, and we could bring that same, we could layer that same approach to Afghanistan. No way. It's a totally different ballgame. And acceptance of that is a hard thing to do. Just because we were successful during the first Iraq war, during the 1991 uh, Operation Desert Storm, has little bearing that we're going to be successful in follow-on wars in the Middle East. And I think we've, we've learned that now. Like very few senior strategic thinkers or leaders, uh, if asked, do you want to get into another shooting war in the Middle East, are going to say yes, because we've been so burned by that experience that it's now like the pendulum swung the other way. So we have to be very careful on both ends. But getting to your question, why is it so hard for us to learn lessons? A lot of it has to do with our, when you when you read something, a report or a book or someone's experience, you have to be you have to take that information and encapsulate it in the context under which it occurred. That is a very hard thing to do. And when you are pressed for time, when you're kind of the proverbial back is against the wall and you're trying to achieve some foreign policy aim, it becomes very kind of uh, natural or easy for us to like pull different experiences like, okay, yeah, well, what, what worked in the in Desert Storm or what worked in this conflict? And maybe there's something there, but we have to be very careful about, about all of that. And then two, you also have to understand that the enemy gets a vote here, that the enemy is the other aspect to all this. And oftentimes we tend to hand wave our bold assumptions about what will happen in the next conflict as it pertains to the enemy. At, at the end of the day, war is always a choice. Always, always a choice. And what changes in conflict is the environmental conditions between wars, environmental conditions consistently change. And so you have to be very careful about the decisions you make and the conditions under which you make them because they can have profound outcomes later on in the conflict. And there are plenty of examples where uh, in the Korean War, General Douglas MacArthur, his war aim was to go to the Yalu River. That was divergent from American foreign policy aims. Like President Truman, his aim was to return back to the status quo, the 38th parallel. He wasn't trying to like, yeah, it's great if we can re reunite the entire Korean Peninsula. MacArthur is trying to go into China. He's trying to push the Chinese communists back up against the Yalu River, which was just not, that's going to draw the Chinese into the war and expand the conflict. Right. And he wanted to use atomic weapons as well, didn't he? Yeah. Oh, yeah. So it, it's like often when you're in the room, it's very easy to uh, believe that just because we dropped a nuclear weapon in World War II on the Japanese and we achieved unconditional surrender has very little bearing on whether or not we can achieve the same victory over our, our, our enemies, regardless of where they're at. So you have to be, again, very, you have to be very critical about one's um, overall experiences and under which the environment they occurred. A lot of the generals that led the conflict in Vietnam 
were highly successful World War II commanders. Yet here they are, you know, 10, 15 years later, who did all the heavy fighting in World War II, beat the Nazis, beat the Japanese, the Imperial Japanese. They can't figure out how to win in Vietnam. And it's because a, a, a lot of it has to do with the way you perceive your own experiences and the recommendations. Again, these guys are recommending things as they're, they're now senior leaders. And we have to be very critical about about that as uh, military uh, leaders. Regardless if you're enlisted or officer, you have to be very critical about um, every aspect, as especially as a leader, when you're kind of coming up with operations or strategic war aims, you have to be very critical about what you, what you're doing and people's lives are depending on that. I, I think what Americans are asking of us guys like me as, as officers is that we concentrate on our job. We concentrate on achieving kind of our, our mission, leaving the rest of the political discussion and all of that to politicians, to the elected, uh, to, to, to those who do the electing in America. And th that could be a hard thing to do, you know, when things are not going well. It's easy to, to look up and uh, begin questioning, especially when things are not going well. But I, I think at the end of the day, we owe it to ourselves to stay narrowly focused on your mission and the task at hand. Uh, you start letting all those things creep in, man. That is like, that's a bad mixture. I think as well, today, politics and the military's become intertwined. And you say that degree of separation is quite difficult. But um, now some good advice there. And obviously just sort of moving the, the conversation on a little bit then. What would you share to Marines or any other service member beginning their journey in the military today? You know, as a, as a young Marine or young soldier, whether you, you even, hell, if you're in the British Army or you're in the Royal Marines or whatever it may be, this, this sounds like, uh, you know, bumper sticker here, but you got to learn how to enjoy this, um, whether you stay in for four years or more. Uh, you've got to learn how to enjoy this because at the end of the day, you're getting paid to do a job. American taxpayers or the British taxpayers are paying your salary to execute this you know, certain set of tasks and skills, you need to be happy. And if you're not happy, then it's time to hang it up and move on or find a way to be happy in that organization. And there's aspects about the Marine Corps that I don't like still to this day after 20 plus years. But there are aspects that I've come to appreciate and come to enjoy that keep me in, that keep me driving forward. And um, I will tell you that that is what has made me, I won't say successful, but it's made me happy is that I've learned to, I've learned to enjoy different aspects of the Marine Corps for what they are and not what they're not. And uh, what I would tell a young Marine, uh, British or otherwise, is that you need to learn to enjoy various aspects of it and realize that you're joining an organization that is, you know, uniquely different from any other service. I, I, I often come across Marines who should be in the Air Force or who should be in the Navy. <laughs> And it, like they made a choice, you know, it's like, hey, man, if you want better living conditions, there's an option for you. If you if you want to do the nation's war fighting on day in and day out, there's an option for you. I was watching a thing on Instagram the other day there, and it was a U.S. Marine Corps officer was posting about suicide. And a quite a shocking statistic. He said, that in a, I think it was the last, I can't remember the time frame, but in his brigade, there had been 15 suicides. I just think that's a 
horrendous number. Uh, and we're talking now about being happy in your job. You know, and there's an old saying in the British Army, when soldiers stop mourning, that's when you start worrying. Why do you think there's that level of unhappiness where in a single brigade, 15 Marines have taken their life? You know, every every situation is different. I can only speak to those suicides that I unfortunately uh, understand. And we, we investigate these uh, thoroughly to the best of our ability. And Tired of ads barging into your favorite news podcasts? Good news. Ad-free listening is available on Amazon Music for all the music plus top podcasts included with your Prime membership. Stay up to date on everything newsworthy by downloading the Amazon Music app for free. Or go to amazon.com slash news ad free. That's amazon.com slash news ad free to catch up on the latest episodes without the ads. I'm actually surprised at the depths we go. Uh, as an example, we, I and my staff and my, my, my Marines have gone back to the person's minute by minute life and the hours that they took their lives. And that's not the same for in the civilian world. We do a, a far greater uh, depth of understanding. We, we attempt to understand what transpired here. And it's because there's a, there's a degree of responsibility that we owe as uh, leaders. So to answer your question, why do I think there's more such a degree of suicide? I, I think a lot of it has to do with culture. I think a lot of it has to do with the environments these individuals are in. Uh, I think some of it has to do with compatibility. Often, as the ones I have seen, an individual will take their life for a very temporary problem. It's a permanent solution to a temporary problem. But without going into too much detail, I had a young Marine take his life when I was a young second lieutenant. I'd just been in the Marine Corps for less than two years, and his suicide has stuck with me forever. I went to his funeral, got to meet his family. Uh, th there's a lot of aspects about his suicide that uh, I have never forgotten and have shaped my view of the military and will continue to shape my view about society as a, as a, as a whole for, for the rest of my life. He killed himself because his wife uh, decided to uh, leave him. And that was just something he was not going to accept. You know, I, I'm not sure had someone been there with him Maybe they could have saved him, but I'm not certain that the outcome eventually his inability to reckon with the problem he was facing. We, I, or anyone else around him was not equipped to, to handle. You know, I struggle with that because I wish there was something we could have done for him. And um, the young man just couldn't accept that as a possibility and he wasn't going to accept that as a possibility that his wife was going to leave him. So he hung himself in the closet of the barracks on a coat hanger and it was disturbing to pull him off the coat hanger, you know, and he had been hanging there for hours. And then in the morning we, uh, we, uh, you know, when he didn't show up to formation, we, uh, we pulled him off. You know, I don't, I don't know. I don't know what happened, but, I, we, we do understand the, the, the situation, but what was going through his mind at that very moment, I, I don't know if there was something we could have done to have intercepted that without physically restraining him. Do, do you think the constant focus on mental health in the military, and in, in fact, quite a, an aspect of 
everyday life these days is can be negative for war fighting and a, a military organization or do you think it's what what's required in this day and age the, the marine corps does a pretty good job of taking a holistic approach to war fighting is there things that we could do better sure a lot of um how we uh talk about suicide or how we talk about mental health is done at the small unit level and i think that is the right answer Sometimes if you try to institute mental health across the, you know, an organization, a lot, it, it doesn't work well. I think as leaders become more mature and understand uh, humanize, as leaders become more human and, um, and, and that kind of happens as you get older in your career, you, you understand life better. You become more adept. I'm sure you now could do a better job at, helping someone than you probably could have done as a young 25 year old. And same thing for me. Uh, When when I'm faced with someone going through a a crisis, a mental health crisis, not not necessarily that they're going to kill themselves, but whatever their situation may be, I now am far more equipped with uh, handling that situation than, than maybe I was uh, much earlier. The quite, the problem is, is that, I don't exist at a platoon anymore. Like I'm not in a small formation. I am at a larger formation and I'm usually one of a handful of men and women that are at that kind of organization that kind of have that life experience. And a lot of people, a lot of fellow young men and women are just not equipped with that. And we're not, we need to be very careful about what we're asking our young Marines to do on a daily basis. Because when they first joined up and they raised their right hand and swore to defend the Constitution against all enemies foreign domestic, it says nothing in there about mental health. And so now all of a sudden, we're asking young Marines to step in and now be mental health counselors, the first line of defense. And that's what they're doing. And they're doing a damn pretty good job about it, at it as well. Uh, I'm very surprised at the amount of um, suicides that are intercepted, the amount of mental health crisis that are intercepted. And that fellow young Marine is stepping in and says, man, you need help. And I'm going to get you to some help. That happens countless times across this Marine Corps every single day. Unfortunately, all too often, a few get through the cracks. And these are the silent, the silent killers that um, are affecting us. So I, I was in 1985 to 2007 and Kev will probably concur here. I, you hardly heard of suicides. I knew of, I think, two suicides across 22 years. But I recently retired from a job as head of security at a university. And I was absolutely astounded at the amount of self-harm and attempted suicides. Thankfully, when I was there, there was no successful ones. But the the, the sheer mental health issues, number of mental health issues and you know, self-harm issues took me aback. My job was, and my team's job, was looking after mental health issues, not security. And I think we go back to what we talked about earlier on, you recruit from wider society. So I don't think this is, it's often pointed to as a military problem or there's something wrong with the military. But I think you recruit from society and if those problems are endemic in society, they'll find their way into the military because that's your recruiting population. Yeah, I think the UK forces, though, have got a lot better in Look, because obviously they introduced trim for the operational side, but more junior commanders, CNCOs are more aware of the 
mental issues and are looking for those key indicators and then referring people. So I do, I do think in the armed forces, they've got a lot better recognised it. Because I mean, Colin and I spoke about this on an earlier podcast where there was individuals in our unit that were suffering PTSD and none of us recognised it because PTSD was not something people were aware of in that sort of level when we were serving in the 80s and 90s. Yeah, I uh, I concur. And the way I look at it now is that because we have done such a good job about talking about it within the Marine Corps and in the military and honestly in, in open society, we talk about mental health issues more. You see it coming across social media much more. Since we do such a good job about talking about it, I think we've removed some of the stigma about someone going through a crisis. And now these days, every time I see, you know, it's, it's, it can be, it can be terrible. But if, if I see someone go through a crisis, like I'm getting involved. And some of these people are like, mm. man, I'm just venting, you know, I'm not going to hurt myself. Like, I just need someone to have a beer with like that. Like I'm not doing anything. Like I'm not saying anything. But we we are so attuned to these indicators that this is the way we should err. We should be making those kind of error judgments because we don't want to be wrong. And what's the worst that can happen? You smother someone with affection. You smother someone with brotherly love. You smother someone with friendship. I mean, too much friendship is never a bad thing, man. It just gets annoying after a while. Yeah. And, uh, yeah. you know, that that's not a bad thing. And... We, I think we need, regardless of how someone grew up, you're in the Marine Corps now, you're my brother, you're my sister, and this is just the way it is. Like, I don't know what to tell you. Like, welcome to the club. This is another aspect you're going to have to learn to live with. What are your thoughts on the Ukraine and this new European war? First, uh, it's tragic. That's the one word. as I start this kind of um, discussion about it is that it's absolutely tragic uh, for the Ukrainians. You know, as you look at kind of where we're at in human history, I think a lot of us are surprised that in 2023, a European nation is invading or a a nation is invading a European nation. I don't know if you want to call Russia a European nation or not, but it's certainly to see this happen is a, is an absolute tragedy. Okay. Mm. Now, what do we do about it? Um, I think we're doing the right thing and that we're providing moral, financial, military support. I think the world is rallying against Ukrainians, uh, uh, with, with Ukrainians <clears throat> to help them defend their nation. You know, talk about just war. I mean, there, there, there's one right there. I think if there's a Ukrainian that's listening to this right now, a Ukrainian warfighter who's listening to this, I just want you to know that we are with you 100%. I think you've got the support of the world, of the free world behind you. And unfortunately, you're having to fight a war on behalf of all of us. I think we owe you what we can provide. As the United States are very conscious of the global security situation and as America has assumed a role in the world, 
and uh, we, we, you know, we have a responsibility to other security situations. So the reality is, is that we are providing all that we can. Do you think that point's been missed that you made there, that you, know, you, you used the phrase, you're fighting a war on our behalf? And I know in some European countries and some parts of America, there's questions being asked about the amount of money being spent. But I think the point's been missed that the capability of the Russians has firstly been exposed as not as good as we thought it was, and the equipment's not as good as we thought it was. And second, that money we have been spent now is probably going to erode the capability as Russia as a force for the foreseeable future. How you measure that, I don't know. But do you think that point's getting missed in America and other European countries, that you know Russia has been degraded as a capability or as an enemy? I, I think Americans should be asking many questions about the war in Ukraine. I think those are all valid questions to ask whether or not we should be involved, because we are. We're providing support. I think those are valid questions. I think we should be asking um, about what degree of support we should provide. Again, another valid question. Um, I, I think, you know, there's a whole list of laundry list of questions we should be asking. And there's nothing wrong with those questions. I do believe the answers to some of them are very clear. I think there's answers to others that are, you know, how, how low in the inventory of anti-tank weapons should we go? I think that's a valid question. How much rocket artillery should we give the Ukrainians? I think that's a valid question. So there, there is, um, there's a whole host of, of questions that, again, I'm not the one to answer that, of course. But I, I think there's a whole host of questions, very valid questions we should be asking. But yes, uh, uh, I, I think sometimes it can be misconstrued. Um, just because you ask a question doesn't mean you're against Ukraine. You know, Ukraine's got my support 100%. That's unquestioned, and I've been consistent in that. I, I do believe that they are fighting a war on our all of our behalf right now. And yes, you bring up a very valid point that the Russian military system, <laughs> holy cow, is it's kind of unbelievable. And I think we, I think some of us felt that that was true, but now we know it's true. And that is a unbelievable aspect of this war in Ukraine that has been exposed, just like you confirmed, that, you know, there there was a lot of problems in Russia, and we all knew that, society-wide, starting with Putin himself all the way down to their military, that kleptocrats have fleeced that country dry. There's not a uh, Russian person of, uh, of influence or wealth who doesn't have a yacht and some foreign country registered in some third world, you know, aspect country or whatever. It's it's kind of unbelievable. But yeah, there, there's a lot there that uh, I think has been exposed. I think Russians knew that. I hope Russians, um, Russian society comes around to realizing that what we've always known about Putin, that he's a very dangerous individual and that this is a, 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 an answer. You know, what, what happens to him and his administration is a, is a question and an answer for the, for the Russian society. I think for me, that's the the thing that I've been most astounded at was the West's complete overestimation of the Russian land forces and their ability to wage war, and also the the uh, sort of the quality of their equipment. Pretty much everybody was expecting the Ukraine to be overwhelmed within a matter of weeks, and and that's not been the case. Um, so I think for me that was interesting. Kev, you're going to make a comment. 
Yeah, I think I think one of the big positives was obviously NATO coming together and it's reinforcing the importance of NATO and reinforcing to NATO members who perhaps were not paying away, not being as supportive. They were just part of the club from the Cold War days to re-emphasise, actually, this is the club to be in, especially when things, especially wars in Europe, which we, ne- we never foreseen, wars in Europe, post the Second World War, the Cold War. We all got caught out by the, the breakup of Yugoslavia, Bosnia campaign, then the Kosovo campaign, and, and campaigns that haven't finished. Everyone thinks, you know, Bosnia and... Kosovo and all the rest of it is still bubbling away and we've got this massive war in Europe again and NATO it's taken them a bit of time but it's pulled itself together and other members outside of NATO want to be part of NATO. One of the aspects that's not talked about as much but Elon Musk given access to his I forget is it star system or something it's called Starnet? Starlink. Starlink. He's given Ukraine complete access to that and for Command and control on the battle space, that has been a, a game changer. Uh, and I think, you know, that, that certainly some of the stuff the Ukrainians are doing, just going, going back to just the basics of OPSEC, things like Russian soldiers accessing social media in that barracks, the next minute they've got a high mile strike landing on them. You know, and the fact, the fact that this Elon Musk system's tying the battle space together, I think it's a really fascinating aspect. And uh, without communications, it's no comms, no bombs. It's an old cliche, but it's true. Yeah, I mean, there's there's definitely a lot from the Ukraine war that uh, we should be taking, and the military is. Uh, there are frequent reports to the wider military audience um, at all levels that the war in Ukraine is, is, is giving a great expense to the Ukrainian people, very valuable lessons to our militaries. And it's not lost on us that the sacrifice of the Ukrainians are, um, are giving us... Um, at very relatively low cost for very little in terms of capability that we've given away and cost. The Ukrainians are returning to us in blood uh, an unbelievable amount of truth about Russia, about the Russian military, about the Russian soldier. I mean, we're seeing horrific war crimes occur on the battlefield. And um, it's they, they've, the, the Ukrainians at great expense have uh, given us kind of insight into a society, you know, uh, I'm not going to say every Russian, so every Russian is like what we're seeing on the battlefield, but we're, we're learning a lot about Russian society that generates the kind of uh, people we're seeing. You're keen to spread your knowledge via social media. Can you let the listeners know where you have a social media presence? And we'll also post the links on our show notes um, and on our various uh social media links so uh, i'm I'm basically on instagram at the cognitive marine and two aspects of the social media that i've been very conscious of one is i don't really show who i am Uh, i i don't make an effort to show who i am i don't make an effort to talk about who i am because i don't want my message to get lost in this this who this is right because this is a imperfect human being, and this is a human being that is uh, maybe not uh, what you like, or maybe it is what you like. I mean, I don't know. I'm not here to. Uh, I'm here to deliver a message, and I'm not here to become popular. I'm not here to become some social media star, or whatever maybe. That's that's not what any of this is about. 
there are some aspects where I do have to like show who I am here and there, but overall, I think 99.9% of my content does not include me. It's mostly about my message. And that's the way I like it. Why did I start it? I started it because I realized that most of the Marines that I've led, I could engage with them for maybe an hour per day directly one-on-one. But when these Marines leave work, go home, they're on their phones, they're on social media for hours, hours. I realized that in order to communicate with them more effectively, I had to leave like crumbs of knowledge everywhere in places where uh, they could more easily digest it, more easily understand. And that uh, in some cases, they feel more comfortable behind the, the Instagram app asking a question. They're more free to do it. I wish, and I, I, I would never, uh, but I wish I could show people the questions I get by the thousands per month, uh, really heartfelt, really difficult questions that they wouldn't even ask their own family or their wives. And uh, this, this uh, Instagram has been a great way of bridging kind of the senior leader to the young individual, and I wouldn't have it any other way. But that, that's the reason why it started. Where it is now is, you know, I'm thankful to be here with you all. You know, it's such an honor. And this wouldn't have happened had it not been for that. I, I guess there's there's two other final things about it uh, that I want to mention, and that is, one, it's also been kind of helpful for me, too, to kind of reflect back, and maybe I'm not right about all the things that I believe. And people will freely tell me that I am wrong. And uh, maybe they wouldn't be able to do that in person. And so there's there's an aspect of that feedback that has been helpful. And I've learned a ton, a ton about things I never knew about from people all the time. I just, just the other day, I learned about radiation and lasers from a, a scientist. He has a doctor's degree in, in uh, uh, radi- uh, radiation and, and nuclear uh, physics. That, that would have never happened without this. The, the final piece is that one of the great things about Instagram is that it leaves like a trail, right? And for people that I care about, that can come back and see my thoughts and my perspectives and uh, can kind of judge me at the kind of different parts of my journey that, I'm, that we're all on. And I appreciate kind of what, what that is. And uh, like this podcast. I will be thrilled to go back a year from now or 10 years from now, and it's going to still exist in the, in, the, in the greater world of the World Wide Web. And I go back often to conversations that I've had years ago, and I've, been not, not, I've never been able to do that until the advent of social media, and, and I'm thankful for that. So, yeah, that, that's kind of the long it's, short of it. It's interesting because one of the comments I got from a British listener to the podcast was he, he was looking forward to you coming on because he, he likes what you post on Instagram, and that's from a Brit. And I think this is something that there's way more active duty American uh, Marines, soldiers, airmen, Navy people in general than there are Brits. There's very few British officers doing something like the Cognitive Marine. Now, I don't know. I think that's probably down to very restrictive regulations about it in the, in the British military which doesn't seem to be the case in, in, uh, across in the States. But I think certainly it's a great way to get bite-sized bits of information across and it's, uh, it should be used more often. So, yes, yeah, UK-British uh, seniors, they seem to use Twitter a little bit because it's very short, sharp, and they, they show an event. But I don't think there's anything where they have an, uh, a Q&A session or receive feedback in any way. 
Uh, perhaps they wouldn't want that. Yeah. Uh, well, I mean, there, there, there are rules in the Marine Corps and the Department of Defense about social media, and I'm very cognizant of them. I've never said anything embarrassing about the Marine Corps or about my elected leaders or those that lead me. I love the Constitution. You know, I've sworn to uphold and defect it, uh, defend it. There's nothing about what I've posted that has ever crossed that line and w- will never cross the line. That's just against who I am as a person. And frankly, I love what I do. So I'm never going to put myself in a position to jeopardize that. And one of the great things about the Marine Corps, oh, finally, you're never going to see me dance, uh, do some freaking ridiculous dance on, <laughs> on Instagram. <laughs> <laughs> Ain't no way. Ain't no way. Yeah. Oh, no, so, no TikTok then. Yeah, yeah. If you, if you got a listener out there who's waiting for the cognitive marine to do some dance on some freaking, you know, shake his ass. I've got to ask freaking... you this, Julian. See, 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 <laughs> did you see that U.S. Marine Corps officer who had the the dog mask? Did you see that one? Oh, that wasn't a Marine Corps officer. That was an Army officer. But uh, I, 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 that was that was definitely an army officer. I appreciate the 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 uh, the, uh, the gesture, but that was not us. Uh, I'm going to let the army handle that one. Uh, so yeah, currently I think being that was, I, was you right. I think he was airborne, wasn't he? I think uh, you're right. Sorry, my, my my apologies for that slur on the United States Marines. So we're we're into the home straight now. So Kev's got a couple of questions from uh, some of our listeners that wrote in on social media. So Kev, over to you. Why is it throughout their history, the US Marine Corps history, that they do not appear to be as well-funded as the Army or the United States Air Force? Yeah, it's a, it's a fair question. So w- without like getting into the age of sail and steam and all this other stuff, uh, long story short is that uh, Marine Corps is the, part, is the Department of the Navy. Uh, we're a separate service, but uh, we do get some funding from the Navy. Uh, we also have our own direct budget, but that doesn't answer the question. The The issue is that today, I'm going to speak about today, is that we, we operate as part of a joint force. And uh, the Marine Corps is, um, I think, doing a pretty good job. We always want more money, but we, we're doing a pretty good job of being stewards of the taxpayer dollar. And I, I think uh, one of the aspects about Marine Corps history is that we have done very well with very little. And that's not something to be proud of, but that's just kind of reality of our existence over the last couple hundred years. And that uh, we've also been very mindful of American taxpayer funded uh, equipment uh, and even of our personnel. We're a very proud organization. And I think that's what you get as well is that for every dollar you spend on the Marine Corps, not only are you getting equipment, which I think when you think of the Navy, you think of ships. You think of the Air Force, you think of like stealth bombers and fighters, fifth gen capabilities. But when you think about the Marine Corps, I'm very proud of the fact that you think about the Marine and his rifle, because that's what matters on the battlefield. That's how you seize territory. That's how you, the very pointy end of a spear is that young Marine, man or woman, carrying out the foreign policy of our elected officials. I'm very proud of the fact that uh, we have a Marine Corps that that is what you think of as the Marine. I think that's an important aspect of who we are and what we are. And uh, another question that came in, it's why is there such emphasis on getting um, U.S. Marines to PME, which I believe is a sergeant school, corporal course, 
over them getting the advanced infantry or small unit leaders courses or mounted leader courses? Uh, so all those courses are very important. Uh, PME is not more important than training. So education is not more important than training and training is not more important than education. I think they exist holistically in this collective. I think at the center of it is the is the individual, right? So is the individual physically fit, ready, engaged? Desi- is the desire there? Is the will? Is the is is that human ready to operate? On one side is have we given that individual adequate training to do his or her job? And I think that's a yes or no question there. On the flip side is as you progress through the ranks, uh, you're going to be asked to do more and more. Not, not thinking, but you're going to be asked to do more and more uh, application of, um, of theories of war. So your judgment will be called upon to provide advice. Your thoughts and your recommendations will be specifically asked. And you need to be able to provide holistic feedback to those questions based off of history, based off of the environment, based off of thousands of factors and very concise, complete kind of responses, whether that be on paper or verbally or testifying before Congress, whatever that looks like. Overall, I think education, one of the great things about education is that is free. And that starts with like a young Marine or soldier or airman getting a book off the shelf and learning about John Boyd, one of the great American thinkers and aviators of our time, or learning about Admiral Nelson and his great victory in 1805 at the Battle of Trafalgar. His decisive action, his raising the flag to the fleet. No man can do any harm by running a ship alongside the enemy engaging. You know, there there, there are aspects of warfare that have not changed. You've got to have that thousand-year-old mind. And what I mean by that is, you know, I, I posted a video the other day of a great poem, Invictus. And it talks about individual going through struggle, but yet finding his azimuth. Uh, if you look at Alexander the Great's march across Asia, or, there is so much there in, in terms of leadership, in terms of uh, warfare that we can learn that it, it lends a lot to the modern day Marine. And it, it's important that we have this thousand year old mind of how can we glean the lessons from those that went before? Because the nature of war has not changed. Uh, what has changed is the environment, the tools, the weapons, so on and so forth. But the nature of war has not. Uh, right now, I am um, reading about the Duke of Marlborough and General Stanhope. Uh, I've actually have the original letters between those two uh, leaders. Obviously, Duke of Marlborough's uh, John Churchill, a uh, relative of uh, the great statesman Winston Churchill, and General Stanhope, uh, this uh, really unique combat leader in a very difficult situation on the, on the, on the continent, operating deep and far from friendly lines. You know, as I'm reading these letters between the two, because I understand the desperation that General Stanhope finds himself in as he's thousands of miles from home, like not well equipped, not with all the forces he needs. And, you know, there's one particular letter where the Duke of um, Duke of Marlborough tells him, General Stanhope, hey, like, this is all you're getting. You're getting a third of the force that you asked. And you got to figure this out. We are behind you, you know, trying to ending with this very inspirational message. And, it goes back uh, to what we're talking about earlier, doesn't it? You'll never have enough of what you want. <laughs> yeah. So, uh, you know, I, I think it's important that we, we look at history and you study history 
uh, from a training, you know, certainly training kind of exists in this kind of not exclusive, but it is this one aspect of what it makes takes to be a Marine. There's this other aspect of, of uh, education and that is self it is free to, to get a book and understand it and contemplate what that book is saying or at very little cost. When you combine both training and education and then the final, that going back to that original aspect is you. And when you combine all that together, our hope is that uh, you become this kind of more more capable leader, uh, more uh, thoughtful leader, and one that is able to kind of deeply contemplate the, the very difficult issues that we will be facing. Over my career, I've been able to bring to bear all of that together, whether I'm talking with a tribal elder or a senior elected official. My, my Marines, who I represent, uh, are asking that I am well studied and I am well thought because I need to give very qualified, very thoughtful answers to those who ask it, whether that's a senior military officer or a family member of one of my Marines. I owe them my very deepest considerations when I'm responding to a question. I'll never forget being asked by a young mother of one of my young Marines about the Iraq war and its validity. You know, these are the questions you get. You've got to have that thousand-year-old mind. So, yeah. So, going back to the original question about uh, training and, and education, I don't think there's one over the other. I think there's it, it goes in sequences. And there are aspects of uh, training that are important for your job and what you do that you must be prepared to do. And there are aspects of education that, you know, you can pull on now, but uh, you also got to understand where you're at and where you are at in the system. And uh, I always tell my um, my fellow Marines, like, hey, look, it's great that you understand Alexander and Winston Churchill's, you know, great speech to the parliament and uh, and the eve of the Battle of Britain. I mean, that's that's awesome. But I need that report later today. So <laughs> <laughs> you yeah. are the destroyer of dreams. <laughs> Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Yeah, that's not what I asked for. <laughs> As usual, we'll finish off with Des Island This with our guest choice of book, film, and luxury item. What have you chosen for this, this week's episode or this month's episode? Yeah, I'll start off with a film, probably one of my favorites. I don't know if you guys have ever seen it. It's called uh, Shawshank Redemption. Yeah, I've seen that. Yeah, we've all. We've all yeah, it's a great. It's a great. It, great movie i like the the layers of messages in it all and i i don't know if you know if you've looked at it so in-depthly but i love the fact that it takes place in a prison and the prison is like a it's it's almost like your own mind right and we we tend to exist in these prisons of our own making and here's this guy who's in prison who's lost all of his you know, many of his, um, I say, I won't say all, but many of his rights, but has his mind. Uh, his mind is like the most valuable aspect of what his existence in prison is like. And he's able to shape his entire world through that, through his mind. It's very interesting at the very end of the film, you know, as Morgan Freeman, you know, I love that. end. you know, there he's walking on the beach and he sees his old friend, Morgan Freeman, kind of outside of that prison. And uh, it's it's a great movie that uh, connects. You know, you, you could look at anything very deeply. I guess you could say, 
But uh, for me, you know, as I look at Shawshank Redemption, um, I've seen it multiple times. There's there's not much there that uh, you can't uh, connect with today. There's a particular uh, thread to the story where the old guy that gets let, let out of prison, I think he was a library guy, I can't remember exactly, but he doesn't want to leave prison because it's all he's known for 30, 40 years. And then he gets out and he can't cope with the civilian world and ends up committing suicide, he hangs himself. And I think that's got great crossover to some people in the military. You know, they leave an institution, they are institutionalised and they can't cope on the outside. So that, that that sort of rings true to me about people leaving the military after long periods of time. Yeah, that's another, I just remember that aspect of the movie. Book, uh, Gates of Fire, love that book. Uh, written by an author named Stephen Pressfield. I've been able to physically talk to him, which is awesome. So the honor of a lifetime. Stephen Pressfield's book, uh, Gates of Fire, such a great book. If you haven't read it, you need to. It's a fantastic read about not just a battle with Thermopylae uh, and the, you know, the hundreds of warriors that stood at the at the gates of um, at the Battle of Thermopylae, but uh, it's really an incredible story about uh, leadership, about combat about training, what it means to be an effective, uh, uh, you doing your part, your, your, your share of the task. I think you asked for a luxury item. I'm trying to remember what I, uh, what I came up with. Very but, American, uh, very American. Yeah, it was very American. Barbecue grill. Yeah. Oh yeah. Barbecue <laughs> grill. So, um, I don't know if for your listeners, uh, you guys need to jump on YouTube and look up Traeger grills. Right. Okay. Uh, bold assumption that there's electricity, but uh, everything tastes great barbecued. So, um, but yeah, I'll leave it at that. <laughs> Colin, what's your book this this uh, episode? Well, tying in with our guest and uh, our cousins across the water, I've picked Letter from America, which is by a, a British American journalist called Alistair Cook. And it covers the period 1936 to 2004. He was a legendary correspondent and he reported on America and lived in most of his life there as well. I've chosen the audio book because if you haven't heard him, Alistair's Cook, Alistair Cook's voice is fantastic. You could, I could sit and listen to him all day. He's, a, he's got a great voice. So basically this letter from America was a weekly guide to life in the US and it ran for 58 years until 2004 when he died. And it was the longest running program of its, of its kind in the world. And he covers with great insight all the political, cultural and sporting moments in this period of American history. Roosevelt's funeral, JFK assassination, Watergate, Lewinsky and Clinton and uh, all the race riots, things like that. But sometimes it's his analysis and observations of the side events, the main subject that are often the best parts. And he's very good at getting to what ordinary Americans were thinking at the time. So it's a great audiobook for dipping in and out often at the gym. You go for a run or walking the dog or when driving. It's probably just as well because it's 25 hours long, but it's well worth the investment. So before Kev goes on to his book i just want to say thanks to julian for coming on and we never got into one of the main things we wanted to talk about julian which was sustaining a deployed force with foraging and you know dealing with those long chain of logistics so i think we're probably gonna have to get you on for a deep dive into that another time so absolutely i'll hand you over to kev uh, sorry mate go on yeah we will get into it but uh, i've had the fortunate ability to speak to some british officers and uh, Royal Marines, British Royal Marines, about forging, you know, to their credit, they listened. And I, I think, um, you know, there, there's there's a lot there. Uh, sometimes 
like like the way I, I kind of uh, approach it is that um, it, everything is layered: logistics, a fire support plan, a communications plan. Everything's layered. So again, we can get into it another time. But uh, you know, where does foraging exist in that layered plan? Yeah, great. And we certainly will get you back on. And uh, so, Kev, what's your choice? My choice is very similar to yours. It's um, it's a title called The Private Spy. And it's the letters of John le Carre. So for those who don't know who John le Carre is, he's a, a famous author. Anyway, his real name is David John Moore Cornwall and was the real person behind the published name of John le Carre, who was known best for his espionage, Cold War sort of spy novels and, and, and stories some of which were adapted for television, so people might remember the late, the latter one was Tinker Tailor Soldier Spy. But during the uh, 50s and 60s, David John Moore, or John Le Carre, he worked for the security service, MI5, and he also worked for MI6. One of his, my favourite novels that he did write was a, a, a book that became a film with Richard Burton, and that was The Spy Who Came In From The Cold, based around the 60s and the height of the Cold War in Berlin. The book, the letter, the letters um, of John Le Carre span his seven decades and chronicles not only his life but the turbulent times which he witnessed. Beginning with his 1940s childhood, he includes accounts of his national service and his time at Oxford. It describes his entry into MI5, the security service, the rise of the Iron Curtain, and the flowering of his career as a novelist in reaction to the building of the Berlin Wall. And then his letters take us from World War II to 2020 when he died. And, it, and the book has been put together by his son. His letters include uh, writing to Sir Alec Guinness to persuade him to take his role of George Smiley and the, the BBC series of Tinker Tailor Soldier Spy. Um, writing to various political leaders, including Margaret Thatcher, arguing with the immorality of war on terror with the chief of the German Internal Security Service. And what you do get is a feel for the real person behind the espionage novels. And some of his views are going to be, uh, you know, he, he did have a view on everything, it appears, and he wanted his view known when he wrote to people or they wrote to him asking for his view. But it does I show... I see his the, correspondence with Maggie Thatcher. Well, it's in the book... <laughs> I don't know if we're going to get all... I suspect we don't get all the correspondence. I suspect we're getting the... The son has chosen the best. Um, But he does it with various actors as well, uh, which is quite interesting. And it does show us the real man behind the Lacari name and brand. Right on. Yeah, that's... I mean, so two interesting books there, because I I did used to listen to uh, Alistair Cook on the radio when I was a bit younger. Well, that's it for another episode and a huge thanks to our guests for coming on the podcast and to you, the listener, for your continued support and suggestions. Please keep them coming. Our email and social media links are at the bottom of the show notes. And as always, I accept letters, postcards and any any other form of uh, media as I'm not very good at the social media side. That's Colin's job. You'll find us on all the usual suspects, including Instagram, Facebook, YouTube and Twitter. If you've downloaded us from iTunes and like the podcast, it'd be great if you could leave us a review there or anywhere where you get the podcast from. Thanks again to Nick Bill for his continuing support and sponsorship to this series and offering technical support through his company, ISAR. See you next time on The Unconventional Soldier. 
Tired of ads barging into your favorite news podcasts? Good news. Ad-free listening is available on Amazon Music for all the music plus top podcasts included with your Prime membership. Stay up to date on everything newsworthy by downloading the Amazon Music app for free or go to amazon.com slash news ad free. That's amazon.com slash news ad free to catch up on the latest episodes without the ads.